Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. When we think about the book of Revelation, uh, many people's minds usually go to questions like, who is the beast, right? Or, or what does the mark of the beast mean? Some people have even questioned, could it be that the vaccination is the mark of the beast? I don't, I, I don't think it, that the vaccination is the mark of the beast, just to be clear. Um, or, you know, we ask questions like, okay, so what, what is the deal with these locusts that have uh, scorpion tails? Like, could that be referring to maybe helicopters? I, I don't know. I've heard all sorts of different interpretations. And um, often when we look into eschatology and revelation, we think, okay, so what are all these details? What do they all mean? And, and when are all of these things going to happen? And I'm not saying that it is wrong to ask those questions. Um, and, and I'm going to kind of give you my, my, you know, my position. But I also see that on the other hand, I've encountered people that really do not like to talk about this at all. And so they will say something that sounds very pious. They will say something like, you know, all that matters is that Jesus will win in the end. I'm like, well, yes, yes, I totally agree that Jesus will win in the end. And ultimately, yes, that is all that matters. But we have the book of Revelation and we have all those complicated visions and, and God has left that for us as part of his overall revelation. And, and so I think it is important for us to look into those things. But I, I do think that when we take these two approaches of like either getting bogged down with the details or being kind of uh, uh, simplistic about our, uh, about our take on the book of Revelation, we can miss out on the main point of the book, the main thrust of the book. And so I would say, yes, absolutely. The point is that Jesus wins. And uh, I would also say, yes, Revelation is not this crazy sci-fi movie or something like that. Uh, But when we focus on those things only, I think we miss the point that the book of Revelation is a letter to the church. Right, it's it's originally is a letter written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but we know that you know by implication this letter is written to the whole church. In the Book of Revelation, more than an account of Jesus's victory, is actually a battle cry or a or a war call towards the church to go and fight this battle. The book of Revelation is a battle cry in which Jesus is urging the churches to conquer. The book of Revelation is not just, like I said, it's not a movie that we are supposed to just sit back, grab our popcorn and look and, you know, just root for Jesus and say, yay, Jesus is going to win. Or it's also not a movie that we look back and that we sit back and just say, okay, so what are the scorpions? What is the beast? Okay, cool. All of this is really nice. The, The problem with that is that we take ourselves out of the, the, the overall picture, the overall drama of redemption. We t- to use the movie analogy, we take ourselves out of the, pic- out of the movie, out of the picture. Um, but I believe that 
in this overarching drama of redemption, we, the church, the people of God, are more than just mere bystanders. bystanders. We are more than just spectators of what's going on. Now, make no mistake, we are definitely not this, the main character. We're not the hero of the story. We're not the director. God is the director of this story. But I do believe that the book of Revelation tells us that we are the supporting character. That the church is actually very involved in God's plan of redemption. So again, I don't think that the book of Revelation is something that we just look at and, and kind of uh, uh, enjoy from the back. But it's something that we have, to, uh, we have to study and understand and see that this is a battle cry for us as a church. Let's think about, let's think about what we have seen so far. Um, remember that Revelation is an account of God's ultimate judicial and redemptive purposes for the world. In other words, Revelation tells us about how God's dominion and God's kingdom in heaven is brought down to earth. It is an account on how God is saving and ultimately will save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's an account of how Jesus is going to triumph over his enemies and he's going to destroy them. Um, but within this revelation, we learn that the people of God, the saints, the, the brothers, there, there are many ways that the, the people of God are referred to in the book of Revelation. But I would argue he's talking about the church, the redeemed people of God. We have a very important role in God's purpose to save the nations. The message of the book of Revelation is not simply that because God wins because through the victory of the Lamb, then we can just rest assured and, you know, we be content since we're not really going to, you know, experience, we're, we're basically, we're going to be rescued from the tribulation and, and we're, yes, we're going to be martyred and persecuted, but ultimately we're going to be vindicated and, and we're going to be in God's presence for eternity. I mean, it, it definitely is not anything less than that, right? We saw when we were looking at um, uh, chapter six, I believe, in between the sixth and the seventh seal, we see that there's a, a, an army of 144,000 uh, people who are sealed so that they are protected from God's wrath. And then we see uh, the same crowd, but now it's an innumerable crowd and they are in heaven and they are enjoying God's protection in heaven. But that's, that's not it. That's not the whole message of the book of Revelation. The, the book of Revelation is not just telling us, be comforted, you're going to suffer for a little while, but then you're going to be in heaven. Again, the book of Revelation is a battle cry. It is an exhortation to conquer. It, we see that especially in, or not especially, we actually see it throughout the whole book. But one of the phrases that really caught my attention um, last week is in, in chapter 12, verse 11, or actually we can go to uh, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, the brothers, the, the saints, the believers, they have conquered him 
by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. So here in the book of Revelation, we see that the, the dragon, the ancient serpent is conquered. He is thrown down from heaven. And we have this striking phrase in which actually says that it is, yes, obviously it is Christ who ultimately conquers Satan. But we have this striking phrase that says that it is the brothers who conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb. Now, again, make no mistake. God is the director of this drama of redemption. He is the one who is sovereignly in control of everything that is going on. The scroll that we see that that no one is worthy to open other than Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the scroll contains God's infinite purposes for this world. The scroll contains God's purpose for for redemption, God's purpose for judgment. And only only the, the lamb who was slain is worthy to open the scroll and to actually win this victory. But then in in chapter 10, we are encountered with, or or we find this little scroll that John is given. And and I believe that this scroll, more than being the whole scroll that that Jesus opened, I believe that it's almost like this little scroll within the scroll. So in other words, we have God's big plan of redemption of the world and something that only, only he knows and he is revealing some things to John. But then we have a little scroll in which the role of the saints is revealed to John. And then we have chapter 11, which is the, the story of the two witnesses. And like I said a few weeks ago, I believe that the, the, two, the story of the two witnesses is a, a, a summary of God's people's role in his plans of redemption. And so based on this, I want us to to ask some practical questions or really uh, one practical question, maybe two. What do we learn about the role of the church from these chapters? What have we learned about our role as God's people, as as God's redeemed uh, kingdom of priests what do we learn about our role? Like, how do we practically live in this world? And, and I think that we get a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight from these verses. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole section. Uh, I just, I'm going to read chapter 11 uh, from verses 1 through 14. But, but we're going to be talking a little bit about all three chapters. Then I was gif- given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God in the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on them who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And please guide us as we look into, uh, as we think about what, what does it look like for us to be your church, to be a kingdom of priests, people that have been redeemed, people that have been given authority because of the authority that your son Jesus has. I pray that you open our hearts, that you open our minds to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what do we learn about the role of the church? What do we learn about our role as, as a people that have been redeemed, as a people that have uh, been turned into a kingdom of priests? Well, one of the things that we learn, and, and this is going to be a little bit of a repeat of some things that we've already studied, but I, I really felt like I wanted to, to really try to wrap my mind around this and, and hopefully give you a, a more clear um, just practical implication of, of all of these passages. So one of the things that we learn, number one, is that the worshipers of God, the people of God, the saints, the, the church, enjoy inward protection from the world, although outwardly they are trampled by the unbelieving world. And, and this is something that we got from that idea where John is, is told to measure the temple and the inner court of the temple more precisely and those who worship in it. And so I believe that that is a picture of God's protection for his people, God's spiritual protection for his people. Whenever something was measured, that, 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 uh, usually that meant it was something for protection. And so inwardly, we have God's protection. Inwardly, there's nothing to fear, right? We, we do not have to have any fear that anyone will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing, nothing to fear for us spiritually. We are secure in Christ. He will never let go of our hand. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not going to suffer tribulation and persecution and, and uh, uh, rejection, but to quote 
Paul in Romans 8.37, he says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors, which again, is the, it's the theme of the book of Revelation. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is extremely assuring. This is an, an amazing thing to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. I mentioned at the beginning that a lot of people or, or, you know, there are people that have said that the vaccination is the mark of the beast. Now, whether you, uh, whether you agree with or whether you like the vaccination or not, I would say, don't worry. If you have to get vaccinated and for whatever reason, don't worry that you are getting the mark of the beast on your hand. Like, again, please don't hear me saying you have to get vaccinated. No. Definitely not. You know, we can talk about all that later. But what I'm trying to say here is there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Don't feel like by getting a vaccination all of a sudden you, are, you have the mark of the beast or you are following the beast, right? Or, or we could put it in any other different way. But my point here is there is nothing to fear. We have God's protection. Nothing can separate us from his love. Now, yes, we are going to be persecuted we're going to be, we're going to experience suffering. We can even be killed. But I like that Paul says that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Now, the second thing that I want us to, that I wanted to point out is that the church has been given authority to humbly prophesy. The church has been given authority to humbly prophesy. So notice how um, in Chapter 11, Revelation 11, verse 3, he says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so I think that we as the church need to remember that we have been given authority from Christ. Like I said at the beginning, the point of the book of Revelation is not, is not hey, be be content, be assured, Jesus is going to win the victory. So now you can continue hiding there until Jesus comes back and then everything is going to be better. No, no, no. The message is, I will grant authority to my two witnesses so that they can prophesy. If, if you go to, uh, right there in, in chapter 11, verse 17, the, the angels that are worshiping God say, or the, sorry, the 24 elders they uh, sit on their throne, they, sorry, they fall on their faces and they worship God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. God is already on the throne. Jesus is already seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has already been glorified. He resurrected and he ascended into heaven he is already reigning. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25, it says that Jesus must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. In Colossians 2, 15, it says that God has made a spectacle, a public spectacle by triumphing over the rulers and authorities of this age in Christ. 
In Ephesians 1, it says that God has established Jesus as king over all things, and he has exalted him above everything else, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So think about this for a moment. Jesus is already reigning. God is putting all of his enemies under his feet. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has been given as head over all things, but especially over all things to the church. We, the church, we are the body of Christ. We are the fullness of him who, full, who fills all in all. In other words, everything that Jesus does here on earth, he does through his church, through his body. If he is the head of the church, then it means that he does things through his body. So because Jesus has dominion, because Jesus is accomplishing all of these things, because he is the head of the church, he is accomplishing these things through us. Remember when we studied the book of Acts? Remember how we talked about how the book of Acts, instead of being called the Acts of the Apostles, it should be called the Acts of, or the continuation of the Acts of Jesus. Because it's not like Jesus' Jesus's ministry ended when he ascended into heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit. He filled his church with, this, with the Holy Spirit and continued his ministry here on earth through his church. After Jesus is resurrected, he goes to his disciples and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and hide until I come back. No, he doesn't say that. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's the same, the same topic here. The, the, in the end of Revelation, all nations are worshiping God. The commission that Jesus gives to the disciples and to us is go and make disciples of all nations. So do you begin to see how not just the book of Revelation, but really the whole of Scripture is we are more than just passive bystanders. We are more than just extras in this, in this, uh, in this movie, in this uh, uh, divine drama of redemption. We are very much involved in God's plan for this world. And we have been given authority. So we should live as people who are servants of Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Because we operate with the authority that Christ has been given to us, that Christ gave to us, we can go out boldly and fulfill our calling of conquering. That's, that's, the, that's the calling of the book of Revelation. To the conqueror, I will give this. To the one who conquers, I will give this. Now, we have been given authority to prophesy, right? Right there, it's a, it, again, in verse three, it says, I will give authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy. So the way that we accomplish the mission that we have been given, uh, that we have received from Christ is by prophesying. In other words, by speaking out, by proclaiming, by preaching the good news of the gospel. This is the way that we uh, 
that we fulfill the mission that we have. We, this is the way that we make disciples. This is the way that we conquer is by going forward and preaching the gospel to the nations, to the world. Our job is to speak about the mystery of God, right? Remember in chapter 10 how it says that now the mystery of God is going to be fulfilled. Well, the way that the mystery of God is fulfilled is when we proclaim the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that anyone who repents and believes in him will be saved, and that those who continue in unrepentance will be destroyed with the rest of God's enemies. This was the, the job of, of, the, of the two witnesses in this story. They bear witness to Christ, their Lord. So again, we're not, just, we're not left here on this earth just to either hide or to try to live the most, comfortably, the, more, the most comfortable possible life. We are here left with the mission to bear witness to Christ, to prophesy, to speak about his gospel to an unrepentant world. Now, I also threw the word humbly in there, and I believe that that's the significance of sackcloth. Some of you may be hearing what I'm saying and say, whoa, Ben, ben is like really like triumphalistic and, and really like optimistic about how things are going to go down. And, and to be clear, yes, I am optimistic about them. Sometimes I struggle with that. But at the same time, these witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. They have not received their white robes yet. And so we, we, we have authority from the king. Jesus is already reigning and, and we are called to prophesy and we have been given power and authority, but we are still living in between God's kingdom's inauguration and God's kingdom's consummation. And so we are going to suffer. We prophesy in the same fashion as the prophets of old. How did it go for them? They were killed. They were thrown into um, empty wells. They were thrown into lion's dens. They were persecuted. They were rejected. And, and this is what we see with the, with the two witnesses. They are not the most popular people out there. People hate them. People hate their testimony. They have, they have power. And I believe that we as a church have power that has been granted to us from God, right? They have power. They, they, they can perform miracles. They can pray and stop the rain. And, and uh, they, you know, they, they, uh, their, their words are like fire, but they are still wearing sackcloth. They are still being rejected. And in the, not in the end, but close to the end, they still get killed, so let us always remember, yes, we, we, we have authority from Christ and we have power and, and we should be going out boldly, but our, our boldness should, shouldn't come from the assurance of, of thinking that nothing will ever happen to us. No, things will definitely happen to us, especially the more bold we are, the more people are going to hate our message. Now, the church, another point that I want us to remember is that the church has, has a royal 
and a priestly duty. Remember at the beginning of the book of Revelation, how Jesus uh, is, is introduced as the one, well, let's just go there because I, I, I'm probably going to misquote it, but in Revelation 1, Verse uh, five, second second half of verse five, and this is something we, I don't know how I'm gonna misquote it. If this is what we read every week, but it says, "To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever." Later in Revelation six, it mentions the same thing that he has made us a kingdom of priests. And then here in Revelation 11, it, we are told that these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two uh, lampstands that, that, that are before God. And, and I'm not going to take a lot of time trying to explain this because I had already mentioned it, but uh, the two olive trees are references to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was a king and Joshua was a priest. They were contemporaries. They were ministering to Israel at the same time. And they were basically the people that were uh, uh, bringing the people back to God. And, and they were the people that God was using to minister his grace towards the people of Israel as they sought to rebuild the temple. And so I believe that these two witnesses are identified with Zerubbabel and Joshua because they are, because they are kings and prophets. And so we as the church, we are a kingdom of priests. We are vice regents of Christ. Remember back in, in, in Genesis, the command that God gave to Adam and Eve was to take dominion over the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and to take dominion. But of course they failed when, when they were deceived by the serpent. But then Jesus came as, the, as, the, as, as God, as, as the man God, and he came and established his kingdom and restored that vice regent role in his followers. And so now we, as his kingdom, it is our job to fulfill that, that mandate that, that it, Adam was given. It is our role to, to take dominion, to be fruitful and multiply and to take dominion. Now, I believe that we do that, again, going back to Matthew 28, we do that by making disciples of all nations by bringing more and more people into this kingdom. We are also priests. We are a kingdom of priests. The, the, one of the things that, that one of the difficult uh, verses in Revelation 11, which there's like a bajillion, but one of them uh, is that they have power. No, sorry, verse Five, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be consumed. The thing about being priests is that we are mediating between God and, and, and people. We are representing God. And so if you remember in, in John, and I think it's also mentioned in Luke, there is another difficult passage where it talks about how uh, the disciples have the authority to forgive people of their sins 
and to basically deny forgiveness. And I think that this makes sense because if we are representatives of God, if we are, if we are mediating between people, then whoever rejects our testimony, whoever rejects our message, they are basically condemning themselves. Our, our words, our testimony, the gospel that comes out of our mouths is like fire in the sense that it can purify and save a lot of people. But at the same time, it, it is basically condemnation to those who reject the gospel. I'm reminded of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So as priests, as we preach the gospel, we need to be very aware that the message that we're preaching is salvation to some people, is good news to some people, but it's also condemnation to other people. How do we conquer? How do we actually, like, I know I said that I was going to give you a very practical message, and I believe that that was kind of practical, but I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get even more practical. How do we conquer? Like, if you're one of those that, that, that if you're one of those people that are like, okay, Ben, just give me a, 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 I don't, let's see, how many points do I have here? I don't know. Just give me a four-point list. Give me four practical steps to fulfill this calling to conquer. Well, here they are. I don't know that therefore I haven't, haven't looked that far. But um, number one, we conquer by the blood of the Lamb. That's, that's the first thing. We cannot conquer in our own strength. If we try to fight this battle, if we try to fulfill this commission we, on our own, we're going to fail. Right? Going back to chapter 12, verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. That is the, the ultimately, the, 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 the most important thing. Because again, it is the only reason why we can conquer is because Jesus has already conquered. It's because the lamb that was slain has conquered. And so if we are not relying on the blood of the lamb, if we ourselves have not been cleansed by the blood of the lamb, if we are not living our lives by the power of the blood of the Lamb, if we are not continually going back to the gospel and remembering the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us, then we're going to fail. That's one of the many reasons why we celebrate communion every Sunday, because we want to remember the blood of the Lamb, because we want to remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for us, because we believe that apart from his sacrificial death, apart from his blood that was shed, there's no salvation. There's no redemption. Nothing can happen. None of God's plans of salvation could happen apart from the blood of the Lamb. I think it's Colossians 1 or Colossians 2. I can remember where it says that, that God's, uh, God's will, God's pleasure is to reconcile all things to himself by the blood of his cross, by the blood of the cross of Jesus. So we conquer, number one, by the power of the blood of the Lamb. Number two, we conquer through our testimony of Jesus. 
When I say conquer, I don't mean buy more guns. I don't mean uh, there is this uh, GIF that I saw one once, and then I can I cannot unsee. But it's this guy running on a treadmill with a sword, and he's kind of I don't know. He's like training and and do, doing crazy things. But uh, ever since then, I every time I think of like. Um, someone who believes that that's kind of how they're going to conquer, right? Like training for, for a physical battle. But remember Ephesians 6, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we do not conquer by actually physically fighting. We conquer through our testimony to the truth, to Jesus. Remember last week that we learned that Satan's main weapon is his tongue, his lying tongue. The way that Satan fights against us is by lying. The way that Satan controls this this world is by lying. The way that that he gives his authority to the beast and the way that the beast is able to, to... to conquer and to have a limited amount of power is because of the devil's lying. And so the way that we fight this spiritual battle, the, the way that we conquer is by bearing witness to the truth, to Christ. We fight the lies of the enemies of the enemy with the gospel of truth with the gospel of Jesus. This is how they are described in chapter 12, um, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we conquer by holding to the testimony of Jesus, by fighting the lies of the enemy with the gospel of truth. We also conquer through our faithful obedience. The, the whole concept of being a kingdom of priests, this is not a new concept to John. This is something that was found in Exodus. When God brought the people out of Egypt, he then took them to Mount Sinai to make a covenant with them. And this is, this is what happened there. In Exodus 19, it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out uh, from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him, out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the way that the people of Israel could continue to be this kingdom of priests, this holy nation was by obeying the voice of God. It was by keeping his covenant. And I think that's why, again, going back to verse 17 in chapter 12, it says that the, the, the serpent, the dragon, made war with those, on those who keep the commandments of God. And that's why I'm saying that in order to conquer the enemy, in order to conquer, we have to obey God. In order to, to actually fulfill our role as a kingdom of priests, we need to obey the commandments of God. It is, it is simply impossible to represent God if we are sinning against God. How can we go and proclaim the gospel to some people while on the other hand, we are blatantly disobeying God's commandments? And so we battle and we conquer by obeying God. Now, we also conquer by dying. And this is one that doesn't sound that great, right? But it's all over the book of Revelation. There's no way of missing it. We conquer by dying. Remember, John is writing to these churches that some of the people are already dying. Not of old age. They are dying because they are being persecuted. They are being martyred. And so the message of Revelation is loud and clear saying we conquer by dying. And this is because that's exactly how Jesus conquered. Jesus triumphed over the enemy by dying on the cross. And so if we are disciples of Jesus, why should we expect any, anything different? Any different treatment? He had to go through the cross before he got his crown. He had to go through suffering before he was glorified. And so the way that we conquer, the way that we fight against the, the dragon, against the beast is by dying. Notice that in chapter 11, it says that the beast makes war against them and conquers them and kills them. Now, the really good news is that the victory of the beast is only for a limited time. It's only um, three and a half days. I, I don't think that that means literally three and a half days, but it is a limited amount of time in comparison to the amount of time that the two witnesses are given authority. Um, also notice in Revelation 12, again, verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. When I was, when I was little and I heard missionary stories and, and things like that, I guess I always pictured myself living a pretty pretty simple life. And then one day someone walking into the church with a gun or, you know, me being in an, in an, I don't know, concentration camp, I don't know. And someone putting a gun to my head and saying, 
deny Jesus. If you don't deny him, we're going to kill you. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, every single time I saw myself never denying Jesus, right? But uh, um, I guess that kind of made me think that other than that final moment when someone would say deny Jesus, I didn't really have to do much more. <laughs> but what I realize now is that Yes, we, we have to be willing to die for the, name of, for the name of Jesus. But the whole point is that we live our lives, our entire lives for the name of Jesus. We offer our lives as a living sacrifice. All of our lives are about the mission that we have been given from Christ. And if it comes to the point where we have to die for that, it better be because we have been living our lives in such a way that has led someone to threaten us even unto death. So we conquer by loving our Lord, serving him faithfully, even to the point of death. But is that it? Do we just die and that's, that's the end of the story? No. The breath of life comes from God and, and the two witnesses are uh, resurrected and they are taken up into heaven. And this is the message of the little scroll that God's people have been given authority to prophesy, that God's people have power to fulfill their mission, that God's people will be opposed and eventually there's going to be a point where the beast is actually going to have a temporary victory over the people of God, but that we will be vindicated. And think about it, this, this perfectly models the ministry of Jesus. He came with authority, he performed miracles, he faithfully prophesied. The enemy had a really short victory where Jesus was crucified. But he didn't realize that that was how he was being defeated. It was by the death of Jesus that Satan was defeated. And so in the same way, by the death of his faithful martyrs, the dragon is conquered. And the good news is that there is vindication. Jesus did not remain dead. He was resurrected. And in the same way, we will not remain dead. We will be resurrected. We will be vindicated. Right now, the world hates our message. But there will be one day where we will be vindicated. And this is how, if you see at the end of that account of the two witnesses after the, the earthquake, after the judgment, after the, they have been uh, uh, taken up into heaven in verse uh, 13. And at that, at that hour, there was a great, a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I think this is a result of the testimony of the people of God. When we are faithful, when we conquer, when we take our calling to conquer seriously and proclaim the gospel and we suffer for the name of Christ and we are vindicated, 
God's purpose of salvation is accomplished. People glorify him. People come to him in repentance. So to conclude, let us remember that we are not just mere extras in this divine play. We are not mere bystanders. We have a mission from the resurrected king. We have a purpose. We have received authority and we have received a mission. Let us faithfully bear witness to our Lord and conquer the serpent by the blood of the lamb, faithfully obeying God's commandments and proclaiming the gospel to all nations. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. Thank you that your son, Jesus, conquered that he has already won the victory on the cross. And Lord, help us to look at the book of Revelation, not as this crazy movie for us to enjoy, Lord, but help us to realize that this is a call to all of your people to action, a call to war. Help us to faithfully heed this calling Help us to bear witness to the truth. Bear witness to your son, Jesus. Help us to obey your commandments. Help us to battle by the power of your blood, not by our own strength. Help us to be so ready to give our lives that we would be so invested in this mission that you've given us, Lord, that giving up our lives would be one more step in this calling to conquering. And also with the hope that we will be vindicated and that ultimately your name will be glorified, that your purpose will be accomplished. And we pray. Amen.